number one desirable Out of what I want, when I want, and how I want it Leave you with the one in the end I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. for joining this edition of Trauma-Informed Leadership Uncensored. I am so thrilled to have Christine Cowart, Janet Roche, and Davis Hart with us today for this edition. And we're going to talk about trauma-informed design. And we can't talk about trauma-informed leadership, trauma-informed workplace, and not talk about design. So let me give you a little bit of background on each of our guests. So Christine, you are the trauma-informed expert, right? Like out of all about, including me, like your credentials around trauma-informed care and trauma-informed work is really impressive. Um, Christine is a duly certified um, trauma-informed professional by Florida State University and the International Association of Trauma Professionals. She's also a member of the AIDS Connection Speakers Bureau and Trainers Bureau. Uh, she has absolutely built a phenomenal career on the health and, in the health and human service field with a focus on criminal justice and family services policy. And through her work, uh, she has developed an in-depth understanding of trauma, its possible effects, and what can be done to change this story. So, Christine, again, thank you for joining um, the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And Janet Roche. Janet is the co-founder of the Trauma-Informed Design Society, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that as well, because all three of them are a part of this amazing society. She is the leader in designing for health and wellness and a faculty for the Boston Architectural College, also BAC. She teaches environmental health, human conditions plus design, and currently biophilia. And she also sits as the uh, Boston Architectural College's current chair of Alumni Advisory Council. And then finally, Davis Hart is the leader in health and well-being design. She is the director and faculty of the Design for Human Health Master's Program at Boston Architectural College. She is a well-accredited professional, and that is capital W-E-L-L for our designers out there, um, and health and well-being credential that uh, denotes expertise in well-building standard. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, and all three of you are the founders of the Trauma-Informed Design Society. Um, we've spoken a little bit more about that when we first engaged each other, but I'm so anxious to share all of this information with our, with our listeners. So tell me, you know, you all can start in what order, fashion that you want to start, but tell me, tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves. Um, talk about the story about how the society, you know, came to be. Um, and, and the why? Well, um, I think I can start off with 
you did a nice job about explaining who I am, but as you said, all three of us are co-founders for the Trauma-Informed Design Society. Um, it really, it was already a conversation that Davis and I were already starting to explore. Um, meanwhile, I am a Vermont adaptive um, uh, trainer for uh, athletes and, in Vermont, and they were having a training session. So, so Davis and I started talking about all of this, maybe like what, 2019, like that was sort of the first parts of the conversation. And then um, I, like I said, I'm Vermont, um, Vermont Adaptive. And so they were having a training session and they were going to have a training session on trauma and what is trauma. And I have a social work background. So I was like, I really didn't want to go. And I thought, I know everything. So I really thought this was not something I needed to do. Christine was the one that was presenting. And so I listened to this and I went from sort of essentially thinking, not only did I not want to be there, I was trying to figure out how to sneak out, like when she turned her back to eventually like kind of like, hey, 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 I've got questions. And then I followed her out in the hallway. And the joke is, but it was actually very true. I did follow her out to the parking lot and I said, we need to, we need to work together. And then, and then I, um, and then I actually emailed her from the parking lot too, like, so great to have met you. Um, and I really was, it was, I think it was a little frightening for her, but so, right. So that was like um, fall of 2019. And, and then Christine and I met and I was going to talk to her about doing something else in February of 2020. And then we went into the pandemic. And then Davis and I really started talking about what trauma was and is and how the pandemic was really starting to weigh on everybody. And, and it really became a thing. And I said, we, well, we had these conversations and, and I finally said to her, and this is another true anecdotal story. I said, I said, you know, trauma informed design dot org is available for $2.99. Uh, do you think we should grab it? Uh, and she's like, all right, let's grab it. And um, and at that point, she and I were also already like becoming uh, like go-to for different magazines who wanted to know more about what trauma-informed design was. And so we were doing interviews. So we thought we would at least get a website up there or whatever. And then and then we realized it was beneficial at that point to bring Christine in and make it more of a robust and actual society. And I'll let the these guys like explain some of the next steps. But really, that was sort of the impetus. And um, and it, we haven't kind of looked back. And I would have to say that the good news is is that we. I mean, there's just, uh, unfortunately, the good news, bad news is the good news is, is that there's plenty of work for us out there. And there's so many people that are in, um, interested in this and wanting this and want to implement this. Um, but that's also the bad news. <laughs> there's so many people that want this and recognize it and understand it, even if they, if only on a very, very, very basic level. That is a great story on how this thing came to be. And I think that there is such a, so many folks have seen as devastating as the last 30, 31 months has been for so many of us, there has been a lot of really great stories of 
the opportunities that have presented themselves as well. And this clearly, this is clearly one of them. Um, Christine, I'm going to come to you last because I want you to sort of connect it all. And Davis, um, talk to me about design. Why is this, why is design important now more than ever? Well, that's really important part of the equation in our minds because, uh, for Janet and I, we started working in a middle school in Boston that was very low status and is still very low status. And knowing the training I had before I became a designer and an academic was as an early childhood educator. And to me, it was very clear right away that the environment in which we were spending our days was a, an educator. That was part of the kids' experience. It was our, us and our relationship with the children and how the classroom and the building in which we were spending all those hours, how they supported us, how they raised our stress level, the frustrations. I would repeat to myself, what has this architect who designed this child care center ever spent time with more than one two-year-old at a time? So the spatial design is something that once it's set can be adapted and changed, but knowing the needs of the future users of that space in a way that even they don't quite know how to articulate is, is essential. So getting that deeper level of knowledge about the physiology of humans, how do we stress out? How do we react when we're nervous or when we're scared or when we have to do something we don't want to do. Uh, all these things we regularly do as humans, we, um, we know that the built environment, we call it, there's lots of terms for that, that spatial stuff, the built environment in which we all move, our houses and our towns, that it's in and of itself helps direct our behavior. It helps us decide how to navigate our lives uh, it helps us know what our opportunities are, and it can also do the the reverse of that. It can inhibit all of those. So design is a process, but it's also something that's set uh, because once a building is up, it is quite solid, as we know. Um, but it's also an iterative iterative process is a big part of the leadership that, that I work on and, and our team works on is that we're creating as we're going and we're learning as we're going, we're reflecting, we're checking, we're checking in with ourselves, and as a team, how can we, how can we do things better? And that, so there's just lots of different types of design. Well, and you're even talking about as the, the basics of even color selection, right? like color selection, natural light versus ambient light. Um, I don't think that we, th we give that enough thought. And that's why this conversation is so incredibly important and just a wonderful continuity of this subject of trauma-informed leadership, trauma-informed workplace, and the built environment. We talk about systems a lot when we talk about trauma-informed workplace. And this is a part of the system. It's the design, it's the physical environment in which we spend most of our days in, um, at least if those who have returned back to work. And so we can certainly talk a little bit about, about that um, as well. Davis, thank you so much for teeing that up. Christine, wrap this all together. You know, where does trauma fit into all of this? Why is it important? 
Thanks for asking that. It's such an important question, especially now post pandemic, but it always was, it just wasn't recognized, right? Mm -hmm. So what we've learned uh, is that when a person's stress level rises to the point of not being manageable, they are likely to have a stress response. And this is what we frequently re refer to as the fight, flight, or freeze. Some people now also talk about fawn. These are responses in which we can't really access our full brains and we can't really think through things logically. In those moments, we don't understand cause and effect. We're just reacting because we feel unsafe and we are seeking safety in whatever way we can. And so this has always been part of human biology. We're just now starting to understand why it happens and how it happens and how we can intercede, intercede with that and really address it in different ways. And most of the addressing that happens from people who are aware comes in helping someone tone down their responses when they are having a stress response or on the other end teaching people to regulate their emotions better so or manage those high stress times so that they don't start and have that stress response in the first place mm -hmm. when i met janet She's absolutely right on when she tells that story because I could not fathom what design had to do with, with trauma and my understanding of it. And I've learned a lot in the last couple of years about how the spaces that we're in influence our stress levels. And so while we might not know example of that, Christine. So if I'm in my workplace, what about the design? And maybe not just Christine, but all three of you, what about the design that would cause or to exasperate or facilitate a higher stress response, right? So imagine you were a person who had experienced an attack in their past. And you weren't sure you're in, now in a open workplace environment where people can come from any direction and you don't know you might feel more comfortable with your back against a wall where you can survey what's coming at you right so there are so many things that we don't think about on the day-to-day -day. and you know janet and i talk a lot about architects wanting that aha moment. You walk into a building and you see that high ceiling and it looks magnificent. And this is their, you know, their moment to shine. But for someone who might want a little bit more safe feeling, they might want something a little bit more cozy and comfy feeling when they're walking into a building where they're, they might already be stressed about walking into a building where they might have an uncomfortable interaction you know a parent going into a parent teacher conference and not knowing what the teacher's going to say or going into a doctor's office or going into a situation where you know you're going to see a child welfare worker for example 
So yeah. there's a lot that we can do. And I know that Janet might be primed to add on to this. So I'll let you chime in. Well, yeah, when you had mentioned, um, and, and Davis obviously hop in as well, you know, when we talk about even just the workplace, <clears throat> Christine brings up a really good point. You can have somebody who was maybe a veteran or just somebody who was attacked or whatever, and those open work, um, uh, are, you know, open spaces for working in offices and stuff like that doesn't work for everybody. And it doesn't give them... Uh, a choice right agency over where they're kind of sitting and it be and it's and it, it can be overwhelming or if you can have all different types of um comorbidities that go with just the trauma and so with trauma and working like in the workplace and stuff like that and it can be as simple as we talk about stuff like this all the time like having good ventilation because if you don't and if you have like anything from like maybe you've got attacked in the, the copier room and the copier is smelling or the um, popcorn is a smell that creates memories from maybe your childhood or whatever, whatever might've happened. And, and I know that seems very kind of vague to a certain degree, but we've all been there where we've been in an office where there's, you know, too much tuna, there's too much popcorn, there's too much, a lot of different types of smells and that can be triggering as well if we don't have good ventilation. Of course, good ventilation has now become a whole new product because of uh, COVID. But, you know, there's certain things that are along those lines. And that's why we really felt like um, this can, it's not just for like the nonprofits. It's not just for segregated population. This is really something that can be um, applied everywhere. Davis? Yeah, absolutely. Our understanding, as Christine mentioned, we know so much more about what's going on in our brains and our nervous systems than we have ever known before. It's out in the world. It's, it's running amok and we're learning more and more about, wow, the way we focus at work is related to our sleep, which is related to our alertness during the day and our ability to you know, why is it so popular to have biophilia and, and nature? Uh, my hypothesis and many would support is that our, our focusing on a screen and looking at a computer all day is telling our brains that we're in danger. So where our eyes are attracted in a built space is going to help us feel calm or it's going to help us feel alert, like it's a better pay attention because there is that proverbial tiger coming towards me. So having That's windows right. with interesting views out of them is not to support just, you know, landscape designers necessarily, but there's an actual physiological process that's going on. And when that science can team up with the designers and the architects and the team who's building a space or remodeling a space, any space, as Janet says, this is not something special for one um, setting or one population. It's for all people mm -hmm. and it should be easily accessible to everybody so that we can better understand the causes and the effects. Um, it's mm -hmm. hard for the science to keep up with what it is that we actually know intuitively, but saying that the more science we can have to support the evidence-based design decisions, then we can make informed, deliberate choices that are going to help help everybody feel feel better, uh, and it's it's a cumulative effect, I think. Yeah. So I can think of two two tangible ex, uh, 
examples now, you know, now that we're talking about it. Um, one is I used to work for a domestic violence shelter and they did a big capital campaign and designed from the ground up a beautiful shelter, um, but it was designed around trauma. They just didn't say it, but it was around, it was to try to bring comfort and peace and um, calmness to the women who were seeking refuge. And you don't want big, bright, bold colors, right? Like everything was designed to make you feel safe and at peace. Um, so that's just, again, another example. Yes, that's from the nonprofit arena, but it can be involved with everyone. Let me also just say that one more recently, which was a more intentional uh, around this trauma-informed design, um, I happened to work for an organization that was looking to build tiny homes for veterans. And my department was contracted to do a health impact assessment on the environment. And one of the things that um, the location of where these tiny homes were going to be, um, it was donated land, um, but it was right next to a cement maker. <laughs> and it was, it seems bizarre, but no one took into consideration the noise from the cement factory and veterans who might be experiencing PTSD, right? And so it was one of those things where we had to say the environment, the design of this is not conducive to veterans of war. Um, and so those, I mean, am I on the right track here? It's like, this is what we're talking about, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially for nonprofits, it's always difficult because they're always just trying to raise money. Right. So they they end up sometimes getting what they get. But, you know, on, on something along those lines, even though it's horrible, I mean, it's definitely not ideal. But Davis and I can assure you that there would be ways to mitigate some of those sounds in those little tiny houses that would help to like really um, create a, a, you know, bring the sound decibel level, yes. um, decibel level down and then also create more calming. And there's other ways to promote that within the landscape, within the um, all the rest of the product. But, you know, sometimes the way we got to deal with what we have, but at the end of the day, yeah, no, that's not a good idea. Right, right. And they did actually do that. They reached out to one of the universities that had, um, a school of design and landscape architecture. And that's how they tried to mitigate it. So they, they went forward with the, the work on that land, um, but then put some design factors in to try to at least mitigate that. And they, what they did also is that they screened the veterans to make sure that they could identify whether PTSD was already present and then use right. that as a way of, again, being sure that there was some mitigation in place. So just, um, it's, I, I, well, here's the thing. And I also think that when we did that, we did that maybe about six years ago and everybody thought that that was so progressive. And I think, and maybe it was at the time, maybe it was, but this is not boutique anymore. I mean, we've got massive trauma tsunami heading our way our young people have been exposed to so much, and that is our future workforce. 
And so there used right. to be this data around 70% of all folks, you know, um, all Americans had experienced some form of traumatic event. Well, that that is, we don't know for sure what the data is, but it's not 70 anymore. I mean, I have never met, I have not met one single person that has not been impacted, severely impacted over the last 30 months. And so our young people certainly, is, our young people are the young people, the young generation rather of mass shootings, right? Like it's just, um, right. and so our workplaces do need to start responding. They better be prepared um, or you're not going to have a conducive environment for the emerging workforce or the emerging leaders that are coming our way. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely yeah. agree with that. And thank you for bringing it up because I was going to say that anyway. One thing I was going to say is you've heard us, I think all three of us have said it in a different way. This is not just about the social services organizations, right? This is about every building. Just like I always teach that trauma-informed care is not just for nonprofits, it's for every human interaction, right? It's a new way of parenting, of thinking how we relate to our spouses and our friends and our coworkers. And I use that 70% statistic all the time, and I agree with you, it is probably way higher, but it's self-reported. Yes. And it comes down to what people understand as trauma, right? So most people don't have a very full picture when they're thinking of trauma. They're thinking of acute specific instances or warlike PTSD, right? And as our understanding of what and that's why sometimes when I talk about this, I don't specifically use the word trauma. I don't use the word trauma response. I don't use the word trigger as much because everybody understands stress, right? And there are a lot of people who would tell you that they experience anxiety, but they wouldn't necessarily identify as having trauma or trauma responses or stress responses. when really the two are very strongly linked because anxiety is really a symptom of hyper arousal, which is the experience of being outside of your ability to manage your stress level on the high end. Um, and then the other side is, I also like to caution people that we always think about when, we're, when we are thinking about trauma-informed design spaces, we often think about the people who are on that high end. We don't always think about the people who are on the low end, the people who are detached, who are disassociating, who are pulling within and withdrawing within themselves. And we need to design spaces to help them regulate as well and help them really come out of that experience so that they're able to better interact with others as well. And mm -hmm. so I'm so excited that I hooked up with these two because they have taught me so much and they're really the experts in how to do that, um, where this is so intricately linked with care is that it's based very much on the population of who's using the space. So what might be trauma-informed for one group might not be for another space, right? You have to 
look at who's using the space, how they're using it, and use that understanding to try to anticipate and then mitigate whatever might raise their stress level. Mm -hmm. There's so much to drill down on, right? Like I've even just thinking about, there was this movement for a while to provide rooms for professional women or women in a workplace to breastfeed, right? And so they had the breastfeeding room and, you know, simple as having a self-care room or something where someone can remove themselves from an environment that may not, may not be appropriate at that moment, right? Um, but they have a safe place to go where they can meditate or a meditation room. Are you seeing any of that? What's the evidence or what's, what seems to be the best practices in design right now? Or, I was just going to say, or nap, <laughs> like, yes, uh, or nap. Um, you know, I, before I kind of jump in, you know, I was thinking when you were mentioning that one of the things that I really started getting interested in was watching a lot of the, um, you know, these like dot com companies coming through and they were doing things like having areas where they're, um, their smartest thinkers could go and play. Uh, there were nap rooms. There were, to your point, child feeding rooms. There was cafeterias. They made it a and gyms, and they made it a campus for them. Now, I would probably argue that they probably had some. They had alternative motives on that, but you know, there was definitely. I I found that fascinating coming from a world of cubicles. Um, in a you know one of my jobs was working at a financial company and I was in a cubicle and I used to say I was, I'm tied to another tether nowadays, but I don't mind it as much as I was because I was fielding calls and stuff like that. But it was, um, you know, it was a pretty horrible place to, to work. Um, and um, so I don't know if you guys want to jump in while I think about other kind of trends. One thing I just noticed We've been working with a lot of architectural firms who really want to bring trauma-informed design to their work. Unfortunately, it needs to be built into the design and it comes at a cost. And unfortunately, what we are seeing is when it comes to staff areas, those are the first things to get sacrificed. Hmm. And we're always trying to make the point if your staff can't regulate then they're not able to work with pe other people who have high stress right they're not able to help others regulate they're not able to do their best work they're not happy it's going to affect your burnout and your retention and it, it's so vital to the health of the organization itself that we are very strong advocates that that stay in, but it is always, even in places, you know, a lot of schools have these quiet rooms and, and regulation areas and things. They are the first things, whether for staff or for, or for kids, they are the first things when they need extra space that get taken away. Yeah. And so it is right. It's the paper towel, paper towels need someplace to go. Where are we going to put them? We'll put them in the 
we'll put them in these like sensory rooms and stuff like that, which is, I, I find that insane, you know, like there's gotta be better ways to do this. I'm sorry, Christina. No, I was just going to say, it's this idea also of we have met more students. We need more rooms to do pullouts with them and to do one-on-one -on -one work. And we have the space and it's nice to have, but it's not essential to our mission. And that's kind of a thought. This is thought of a lot now as icing on the cake. And mm -hmm. we, we really see a lot of our work as helping people understand how vital it is to their mission, directly to it. It's literally something I talk about, um, you know? weaving this into the DNA of your organization, right? That Right. And I'll, I'll, I can tag on because I'm thinking of all the, the history of people who study design and environment and the effect that has on people. It's many, many, many decades old of a field, this environment and behavior interaction. And for my, my impression being younger in that uh, work is that it's been convincing people that it is true that the built space does have an impact. And so our predecessors who we build our work on have done amazing work and have been demonstrating again and again and again. And now I feel that there is a cultural shift that is not centered quite yet, but it's becoming centered, as you say, this the tidal wave is coming and so forth, that there is no doubt that the environment itself has an impact on our on our feelings and our emotions and how we behave. And so then to build out from that into more specific, here are some design guidelines we can give you. Here are some actual suggestions that mean you can't business decider person, you can't get around it. You can't be putting the paper towels in there anymore because the people need a space to go and rest and move away from their stress and get themselves re-regulated back into their own best self again. And it's 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 feasible. I have a lot, a lot of optimism and hope for, for the future. Davis, let me follow up on you uh, with this. And, and then we're gonna transition to our 30 second hot seat. Um, how are the professional associations, the design, the professional design associations, in addition to your society that you've created, but the ULIs of the world, the AIAs of the world, where do you see them? You know, they, they were doing a lot of good work around healthy design communities, right? Where are they with this trauma-informed design concept? Well... <laughs> I think part, I think part of it is is that there's a coming together of understanding the concepts and the terminology, but everybody is coming at it from their point of view and their positioning, and so we're all spiraling around each other, supporting each other, saying, "Yes, that's you're on the right track there," but also don't forget about the nervous mm -hmm. system itself. Mm -hmm. Don't just pile some ideas on top of a problem and call it solved, we need to go deeply with that understanding of making those connections of why decision A affects outcome B. Uh, there's There are interrelationships that can be figured out and uh, coming into that terminology of trauma-informed design has captivated everybody's attention. 
Um, I've spoken with uh, chapters of AIA in um, Los Angeles uh, on the topic. They're very keen and get it and want to implement it in um, the shelter work that they're doing. Uh, it's a popular topic. At, I'm a member of the Environmental Design Research Association, as is Janet Edra, and trauma-informed design is you know, everybody gets the, gets it and they want to know more. And it's also easy for people to say, oh, I understand. I've got it. When in reality, there's a lot yes. more depth and thought that needs to be put into it to do it um, ethically and, and consciously. That's exactly right. Because you can't, you can't, this is not a check the box kind of a thing. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely not. Janet, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it's about understanding the the people that you're trying to serve as best you can. I mean, um, you're not going to design a domestic violence um, building the same way as you might design for somebody who, um, who is a veteran. Like there, there's different considerations that go into that. Um, and just to kind of answer your question, yes, I think that the associations are, are starting to really kind of um, pick up on that. Um, we did just get a grant from ASID this um, past year that we just finished for an evaluation tool for K through 12 that we hope are, will be used um, with Huckabee in Texas for the new uh, school in Uvalde uh, to replace the Rob Elementary School. So as, as a as a tool, and we're going to keep working on that. And so a lot more research needs to go into that. But um, so we were tickled pink, needless to say, when ASID said yes to the grant. Um, so they are getting it more. Uh, and I went to gather for through ASID. And the, just like Davis said, there's a lot of different individual chapters that are like, hey, would you want to come and talk to us? And so people want to know more. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what Christine might hop in and probably say, because I believe it as well, we, we run across a lot of like, okay, well, we're just going to slap that label on this and call it a day, right? Like we're good. <laughs> and, um, and we find that I, Christine and I, and Davis too, we play different kind of roles, but it's, we've you know, it's like, okay, well, that's nice. Like, okay, but let's, let's really have a moment here and let's talk about it. And it's really not about having just like an hour lunch and learn and stuff like that is really, it needs to, you know, the lunch and learn gives you a nice overview, but really to kind of get into really the meat and potatoes and really make an impactful difference within people's lives, within this built environment, you really need to, you know, really need to you know, get that shovel and start digging. Yeah. Well, the training, in my opinion, you know, you think about just kind of, Christine, you were talking about, like, not everyone knows what this is. They don't know the terminology. They grab a hold of a term because it happens to be a popular term right now and and use it in very different contexts. And I think that sort of doing those trainings help people become aligned with a common understanding of what we're about to embark on. Um, that has always seemed to be helpful in the work that I do as well, because I'm really addressing the systems piece of it. And I can tell you, we do the same thing with equity work. So I ask, I'll ask, you know, the, the standard question, what's your, what's your equity definition in the organization? And if I ask a hundred people, I get a hundred different answers. 
And so that's a finding for me. It's the same thing with trauma, right? It's just the same thing with the work that we're doing is trying to figure out what is that common language so that we can all rally around what this means and how it's going to impact. Um, listen, again, this I have, I'm like writing down other questions that I want, but we're going to run out of time. Um, but I'm going to try to follow that back up toward the end. But let's go ahead and segue. Let's, um, let's come out of the weeds a little bit and let's maybe have a little bit of leadership fun. So if you're, if you listen to the podcast, we always do the 30 second hot seat round. And really what we're doing here is like in 30 seconds, we're asking the guests to answer a series of leadership related prompts and they're to respond with three words or less. Um, some type of response that is leadership related. So for example, if you're new to this podcast, for example, what we're talking about is if my prompt is the redemption, I might say my answer to that would be LinkedIn trainer. Okay. So that's the answer to redemption for me. I have not heard their, their answers yet. I just gave them the assignment, said prepare, but this is going to be the first time that I hear their responses. And so as they're going through their responses, I'm going to actually pick up on something that might be really intriguing, might be funny, might be provocative, might be something that I just go, okay, that was really bizarre, but you need to tell me more. And then we'll talk a little bit more about why they chose that particular prompt and what does it mean for us? Okay, let's have a little bit of fun. The 30 second hot seat starts right the good. Uh, the incredible tidal wave of so many people that are looking to learn more and need more for trauma-informed design. Okay, Janet, three words. Three words, my friend. Three words. That's okay. We're going to keep going. The bad. Staggering opportunities. The funny. Zoom bloopers. <laughs> okay. The ugly. Building airplanes while we fly it. I understand that. The worst. Uninformed masses. The best. Bullseye. The kick-ass. Mentoring change makers. The lesson. Continuing practicing. The redemption. Game changer. The cry. Uh, stress busters and the embarrassing unadulterated passion <laughs> and stop and stop thank you for that all right that's right janet look i feel you because i am not minced for words like i just love the talk so there you go it's all good it's all good we got you though we got you all right i'm laughing because i'm usually the long-winded one yeah, she is. She really is. I'm like, we're going to have to narrow that down. I'm like, how did I get to that position? Oh, goodness. All right. So I have two of them. The first, okay. It was the best. Who did the best? Who answered the best? That was the bullseye. That was me. That was, that was right. me. That was yes. Bullseye. So either the best or the cry. Who did the cry? Good. Oh, okay. I'm going to go with the best bullseye. All right, Christine. So tell me what this means. What is it? 
The best experience we have is when we're talking to someone and we can see that they get it. We landed on the target. We wow. have so many experiences with people who want to know more and then they they think they're getting it, but they're not really understanding, as we were saying earlier, the depth of this work and what it really means and how it really is people-based more as much as it is mm -hmm. design-based, right? And it, we have had so many people come to us. We've talked about people who might just want to be able to say that they can do trauma-informed design or who have ideas of what that might look like. And they want, we get a lot of people saying, we want to make sure we're on the right page. And then when we start talking, you can tell that we're losing them or that their eyes glaze over or something like that, but they didn't think it was that in depth. But when you get the person that gets it, it's like there's an aha moment, just like there is, I think, when a lot of people first understand the physical impacts of trauma, right? There's that moment where, oh my goodness, now I get it. I understand how this works and how, what it would require to do well. And I want everything I can get my hands on about it. And that's the bullseye. Mm -hmm. That's what we're always trying to obtain. That's bullseye. Really good. That was a really, yes, that was good. And I was torn between that one and the cry because I always get really great responses from the cry as well. Um, All right. I have to ask, is it a cry, like a warrior cry or is it a boohoo cry? Because these two thought it was a, a warrior cry. And I was like, it's when I go to bed and I have to have a boohoo moment. You know, that's why this is the 32nd, right? Like it is whatever you, you want it to be. <laughs> and all of the, like the embarrassing, I've had someone talk about, you know, on some of the podcasts, what their embarrassing moments are of, you know, saying things that they probably shouldn't have said in the middle of a meeting, right? Like, it's whatever you define it as. So I can tell you, I have had a lot of cries over the last two years. So it could have been, and it's always about the leadership lesson, right? It is about vulnerability. It's about mistakes. It's about, you know, learning from all of that. So now this was really good. So I want to ask you a couple of questions before we start winding down a little bit. Um, what do you say to the naysayers? I would say that we have naysayers. It's the, we have this, we run across that a lot. We got this, we know what we're doing. And you might've heard of the word trauma. You might know design, but you don't know them together. So that's the naysayer. That's the one that we just want to shake a little bit because you don't know. And if you have, we would have seen you in at least one of the other symposiums that we've gone to or one of the other groups that we've gone to in the last two years and have talked about this. We see a lot of the same people all over time and time again. You're not there. You're not part of this. We have hundreds of hours between the three of us under, you know, under our belts with this. And so we know who's out there and we know it's not you, not you, but you know, like, but we need to know that, you know, and it's okay not to know. Right. I think 
we talk about this a lot. There's an ego that refuses to allow us to kind of come in and say, hey, like we're going to, it's it's not we're really switching up the wheel. We stand on the shoulders of others. Davis says that very generously all the time. Like, and, and it's things like that, that we really think to ourselves, like this is, we're trying, and again, the society is trying to also share that knowledge, right? We're trying to get that knowledge through to everybody so that they can give it to their clients as well. I mean, we're also available for, you know, for consultation, but like, it's something that we really, we feel passionate about clearly. And that, again, it's not, they're not saying no. They know that they need to say yes. They just don't know what the hell they're trying to say yes for. And right. And that's, and that, and, and refuse to allow us to really do what we do or think that, well, you could just like, here's this little teeny part, real quick example is that a lot of times they will say to us, um, well, um, well, here's this little piece of it. You can come in after the fact and just take a look at the floor plans and tell us what you think. And, um, yeah, well, you know, that should take a couple hours. What do you think? And we're just like, no, no, that's not how this goes. So just to jump off of that is I used to think it was to hammer people over the head with science. And I still firmly believe that that is a huge part of our message, but I'm also now hitting on a new approach that Janet's heard me talk about a little bit, which is really when I see the aha moment when I'm doing trauma-informed care stuff is when I talk to people about imagining a scenario and either how they would feel if they were in that scenario or how someone they know feels in that scenario. And then from that perspective, imagine what they're feeling, what might be stressful, all those pieces. It's those run-throughs that really I've seen open people's eyes and then turn around and say, and that's what we do. That's what we bring to this experience, right? It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I stop short of saying not everybody can do this work, but you have to be able to have that, uh, that ability to put yourself in that experience and be willing to feel those uncomfortable feelings and pull from that experience. And so that is why we're, we make ourselves available because not everybody has the bandwidth to do that, the time, the energy, or the willingness. And that's okay. As long as you reach out to the people who are there, who can help. You know what? I absolutely agree with that. And I, and I sometimes feel the same way in the work that I'm doing. And I think that you're going about that the, the right way and advocating for evidence-based work. Um, and you're bringing partners together in their specific expertise. And I applaud you for that. And keep maintain those standards and the ethics. Because as I always say, and it's true to you as well, that if we do not do this right, we will cause more harm. And so I just um, appreciate that you know what you're what you're doing and that's why I wanted you to do this. Hey Davis, how do people learn a little bit more about the Trauma Informed Design Society? How do they get involved? Well, we are very pleased to um, have a website that was 
Janet's idea back at the very tail spinning beginning of the pandemic. We plunked down uh, the traumainformeddesign.org website. So that is still our through line, I'd say. And we wanted it originally to be a knowledge repository, a place where people who are doing this work can come in as partners and to showcase their work. And it's an evolving page as we're able to garner resources uh, and know-how. We're, we're keeping it as up-to-date as we can. So that's the best way, traumainformeddesign.org. Excellent. Janet, do you have any last words for our listeners? Any types of, you know, in addition to the website, anything else that you would like to promote for resources or just some last bits of nuggets for our listeners? Um, I, I think we've done a pretty good job at getting to almost everything. I think um, we, uh, we keep doing things like this and we realize there's so much more that we need to do. Um, and uh, so sometimes I get off of these calls and I go, Oh no, there's so much more to do. <laughs> like, you know, and I get, you know, I can get a little overwhelmed, but, um, but I do, I think for your listeners, what we would really love is that you do go to the website and, and also to Davis's point, you know, like just start contacting us and beat us over the head. Like we would be interested in seeing your work. We want to know what we're, what you're doing. And we also want to be able enough to help promote that on the website. Um, and I think it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So, um, you know, thank you for the opportunity today to really help promote that and promote the work that not only that are we doing, but everybody else out there doing the work so um, that we can all get that information together and, and share. Well, keep up the great work. This is, um, this is going to spread and it's going to become a really big deal. And congratulations for being on the forefront and really positioning yourselves as, you know, credible thought leaders in this space. So keep up the really great work. And I have a feeling that this we'll, we'll be talking some more for sure. Um, and so I'm really glad that we got connected and thank you for spending your time here this afternoon. This concludes today's episode of trauma informed leadership uncensored. Thank you to my three guests, uh, Janet Roche, Christine Coward and Davis Hart. Be sure to listen to the previous podcasts by visiting my website at www.donemmerconsulting.com. I also have two courses on LinkedIn learning, so please be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, and I will be sure to give you those courses for free for a 24-hour period of time. So please follow me on LinkedIn. Until the next time, thank you so much and be safe. Ooh, 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 ooh